Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. I said, Have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 54, which is uh, along with Psalm 52 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, March the 7th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and and I'm your host, John Green. We are starting with this as the first full week of Lent, which started last Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. And so here we go, moving into this season of repentance and season of dealing with sin in our lives. So we're, we're going to continue with our study of Deuteronomy that we began last week, and today we're in Deuteronomy 8, uh, verses 11 to 20. We're continuing in John's Gospel through Lent, and today we'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and the epistle is from the letter to the Hebrews, and it's chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. So remember the situation with um, Deuteronomy is it's Moses's valedictory address to the nation. He knows that he's not going with them into the promised land. He's already been told that that's not going to happen. And so what we've got is he's now telling them the things that he considers to be most important. And what's most important is keeping the commandments and the statutes and the uh, laws of God. And so it's it's important that that happen. But what's what's equally important is that they remember how they got where they are today on the verge of having the promise. And so he wants to tell them how to live when they go into the land. And, and he has a lot of warnings for them. And, and he's cynical about their ability to continue to follow the Lord. And so today what we get is take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. When we typically think about forgetting, we think of a mental exercise. But the reality is is that following God, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, doesn't make any difference. It's the same thing. It's a lifestyle. It's a life lived according to God's Holy Spirit, which leads us into conformity with the law and the truth. And so it's important that, that we remember physically as well as mentally. It's important that we do the things that we do when we are the people that we are in response to God's good and gracious salvation. And it's no different in the Old Testament than the New Testament. It's just a greater salvation worked by Jesus than, than the salvation of God bringing his people out of Egypt. But, but the way to keep it, it, and Jesus said, go and do these things, you know, it, it wasn't just a matter of, of a mental exercise, that there's a physical response to that. And the way that we live our lives, the things that are important to us, the way that we understand the world around us, all of that is incredibly important. And so he says, don't forget by not keeping his commandments, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied. When God has blessed you so remarkably, and life is so simple and easy and prosperous, then, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, and who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. That's, that's an important thing. We, what we want, and the bill of goods that we can kind of be sold, 
is, is that if we turn to Jesus, if we turn to God and trust him, then our lives will be simple and without problems. That is not true at all. What it says here is very specifically, he, he did you, these things that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. We have to be changed. When we come to him, we have a life. We've, we've had a life. We have a way of looking at the world, a way of understanding the world, and a way of acting in the world. And the humbling is to bring us to a place where we recognize truly that he is God and we will bow the knee and we will do according to his commandments. But he does all this so that he might do us good in the end, Moses says. It's important that we reckon that and that we understand. And the writer of Hebrews goes into quite a bit of detail about the importance of discipline in our lives, the importance of God's discipline in our lives. And it's always in order that we might be more like him and that we might have better lives by changing who we are. He says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gave you the power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. In other words, he, he made this promise to your fathers that he would prosper you. And, and that prosperity has everything to do with his action and not your own. You wouldn't have had the opportunity. You wouldn't have been in the land. You wouldn't have come out of Egypt. You wouldn't have any of the opportunities that you have today had it not been for God's action in saving you and bringing you out of Egypt. And it's true in our own lives. We have different opportunities and different responsibilities because he's brought us out of death and into life. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. You will surely die. That language is Genesis language. That's the same thing. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that day that you eat of it, you will surely perish. It's the same promise. And so here, what Moses is saying is, is that now, if you go after other gods, because the tree of life, the Torah, has been given to you, so if you choose that life, then wonderful. But if you choose other gods, you choose some other tree of life, you're out of luck. You will surely die. Torah is called the tree of life, by the way. I wasn't just making some weird metaphor that didn't have some basis elsewhere. But it is the tree of life. And if you follow that, then that tells you good and evil and the path to life. And it's the same with us. If we follow the Spirit working in us, which leads us into all truth, which is not different from the truth that's already revealed, then we will have extraordinary lives. We will know the blessedness of God's presence with us in all aspects of our lives, whether that's difficulty or, or whether it's rejoicing. I solemnly warn you today that you'll surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So they had gone after other gods and they're going to perish before you because you're following me. And if you do what they did, then you will surely die just as they will. In the gospel, I just preached on this not too terribly long ago. It's the uh, story of the wedding at Cana in Galilee. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, so his plus whatever number at this point it is, and we don't really know how many people, uh, how many disciples he would have had at this point in time. So they were invited guests at, the, at this wedding, so it was probably some sort of family sort of related affair. 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And it would be a huge social faux pas to run out of wine at a, at a party like this, at a wedding. And now these, these feasts could go on for several days. And so the trick would always be to have plenty of, of wine there, to have planned well. It, it speaks of, of your financial situation, and it also speaks of, of your ability to plan and to think through things. And you can't just say, okay, hey, Bob, you need to go to the liquor store or the grocery store or whatever and get a couple of cases of wine. That's not a possibility. They had to have prepared all this in advance. And so when Mary comes, Mary, obviously, the way that the the story unfolds tells us that Mary had some sort of role here. She's not just a guest at the wedding, that she has some um, role like a a wedding planner or a caterer kind of a thing. And I don't mean those exactly, but, but she has a role at the wedding other than just guest. And it's obvious that that's true, and you'll see why in a second. Jesus said to her in response to the statement of they have no wine, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That is not disrespectful. If I said that to my mother today, you know, if I said, woman, what does this have to do with me? Then you would be offended by that, and my mother would be quite offended, <laughs> quite offended by it. But that's not in the situation and in the, the, the linguistics here. It's not offensive in the least for him to say this the way it is. But but he's saying, my hour has not yet come. Now, he's already been baptized. He's already been in the wilderness. He's already done some things, and he's already beginning to call disciples to himself. But he hasn't stepped fully into this role yet. He hasn't stepped into the role of the one who can change everything by just his presence being there. As mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And that's the reason that we say that she had a role to play here at this wedding is because the, the servants um, are going to do what she tells them to do. And we see that they actually do this thing. So when there, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now these this water rite, these purification rites, the hand-washing rituals and everything else was really elaborate. I mean, there's lots and lots of tractates in the Mishnah just about this very issue of washing hands, and it's because they considered that they were defiled by contact with the world. And and as the Roman Empire extended into the land, then that increased the chances for defilement by just everyday living. And so they were having to wash constantly from contact with the world because the belief was this, that we are neutral, right? So we're not, we're not unclean just because of, by virtue of being human beings. We, we are not considered unclean to the extent that we've done all the right things under the, the ritual laws to make sure that our sins are dealt with, that we've done the proper sacrifices, we've done all those things, and yet we can still contract certain amounts of defilement from the world because the world is not considered to be clean. It's, there's clean and unclean, and, and then there's holy. And that's a totally different category. That's reserved for the stuff in the temple, and particularly the stuff that's, that's in the holy of holies and in the holy place. But it gets holier as you go closer to the... Um, Ark of the Covenant. And so these water purification jars were really, really important in the land at this time because the possibility for contracting defilement from contact with foreigners, for instance, or Gentiles, would have been great. And so they would have had these water jars there for the guests to purify themselves. Now, all that's done away with when the kingdom of God comes because everything is made holy by his very presence. And so Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. 
And so I'm sure the servants are thinking, man, these are funny people. They, they need a lot of water. They, they do a lot of purification here. And so they filled them up to the brim, right to the top. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. I mean, the, you have to believe that these servants were giving Jesus some pretty significant side eye. Like, what are you talking about? We're, this could be a problem for us. We're, they, they need wine, and you're telling us we put the water in there. We know what's in those jars. And so they took it, though. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You can just see, imagine the look on the servant's eyes is like, man, does this guy have any taste buds at all? He thinks that's good wine? We put the water in there. We know exactly what that is. And then the... The groom probably is looking like, yeah, I got no idea what you're talking about, but thanks for the compliment. And this was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So what, how does he manifest his glory in that? Well, what it shows is the kingdom of God is here and everything begins to change because the kingdom of God is here. You see the same thing, for instance, in the Narnia story, um, particularly in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, that when Aslan comes, things begin to bloom and things begin to change. They begin to move from this sort of... Um, always winter, never Christmas, to, oh, everything bursts forth into new life. And that's exactly what's going on here. There's this abundance of wine. You know, you're talking between somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine that suddenly spring into existence simply because Jesus spoke into it and changed the water into wine. And so he, it's a foreshadowing of the coming of the kingdom that he does these things. These things. And, and I'll bet that the servants began to get a little belief too. And, and the thing with John, he doesn't talk about miracles. He talks about signs. And a sign is different from a miracle in that it's not a standalone thing. It points to a reality that's behind it. Like when I see a sign on the interstate and says, okay, there's, there's a place coming up, this restaurant we stopped at recently, Ketchy Creek Bakery in Delhi, that, that I had heard about. And so I, I see the sign, and now I'm excited, not because of the sign, because I can't pull up in front of the sign and get something to eat, but I know that the, the, that the restaurant is close by, and so that I know that I'm going to get an eclair soon. But I can only get the eclair if I follow the sign. So that's the point of a sign is to point to a greater reality that's standing behind it. But it's, but it's a good piece of information that allows you to begin to, to anticipate that other thing. And so here, that sign points to Jesus as the coming of the kingdom, that wherever he is, things begin to provide in abundance for places. And so that they begin to believe, but, but in John, belief is, a, is an unfolding thing. Right? It doesn't start fully formed. And it's not. It's true of all of us. The way we come to faith, what we knew of Jesus in that moment it is a remarkable thing compared to what we end up knowing. It's We have the barest shred of evidence that says he died on the cross for my sins. He was resurrected on the third day and rose um, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. I, I know that I've gotten life and I've gotten salvation in his name, but there's so much more than that. It doesn't end there. I have a good friend, Philip Comfort, who was in charge of the um, the coordinating editor for the New Testament for the New Living translation, and when they offered him the job to come work with him, he, Ken Taylor and his son were the ones who did the original Living Bible. He said, I'll only do it if you'll understand that salvation means more than getting to heaven. 
because that's the way pretty much they had translated it all the way through. And no, it's life in the Spirit. Now you participate in the life of the kingdom today through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so this, there's an unfolding belief about Jesus, and it starts here. And so they begin to put their trust in him. They've already made, in a couple of cases, great statements of faith concerning Jesus, but now they're beginning to see and believe more. In the epistle, that they're, Paul is, uh, not Paul, because we don't think Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews, but it begins with, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctifies all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So we have our same origin in God. We were created in his image, and he is the exact image of God. So he calls us brothers, which seems at some level to be the most insane thing you could ever possibly hear. How could we consider Jesus our brother? But he says to consider him that. But he's so far above us. But he brought us all into the, the household of the Father. We have the same relationship made available to us. We have the same inheritance that he does because he passed through that veil and was resurrected. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So he had to become like us in order that we could have life. He had to become like us and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps. Remember, this: the argument begins with his superiority to the angels. And, and Psalm 8 says that they made us for a little while lower than the angels. And, but Jesus is not. And so he, he comes and, and comes through this, and, and he died for us. He, it's not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, those who, who he was born like. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servant of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. In other words, the, the, the sins had to be dealt with, and there had to be a propitiating sacrifice, that which would atone for sin. And so Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. So it, the propitiation describes his, the efficacy of his sacrifice vis-a-vis God. He, he made the atoning sacrifice, but he is the propitiation for sin. It, propitiation would say that it, that it, it um, forestalls God's anger. He looks on Jesus and, and sees him, and then that becomes the way he's able to love us and see us as something that can be loved because of the blood of Christ that we're covered with. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So we know that, that he suffered and dealt with the kinds of things that we had to deal with, but he dealt with them like at a, at a higher, exponentially higher level for most of us. Most of us are unlikely to suffer anything like the way that Jesus did. But he suffered all those things without sin, and he becomes, therefore, the, the example par excellence for us, but also, it's not just an example to follow, he also gave us his spirit 
so that we might be able to follow his example, because otherwise we're not able to, because the sin that dwells within us, but the Holy Spirit allows us to overcome our fear and overcome our sin in order to follow him and to deal with temptation in the same way that he did. We don't always pass the test, but there's always a test so that we might be humbled and that he might further bless us.